and welcome to Inside Nursing. With me today to talk about health literacy is a registered nurse whose background is mainly oncology at a level one trauma center in New England. Her name is Christina. Welcome, Christina. Hey, thanks for having me. Of course. So like I said, today we're talking about health literacy. And first, I want to start by defining what health literacy is. The definition comes from the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act that was passed in 2010, which is also known as Obamacare, but we're going to refer to it as the Affordable Care Act. This act defines health literacy as the degree to which an individual has the capacity to obtain, communicate, process, and understand basic health information and services to make appropriate health decisions. That was kind of a lot. Interesting. What do you think about it? Well, I did a little bit of research, obviously, before coming on your wonderful podcast, and um, they've changed the wording a little bit. I'm trying to remember. It was some um, health literacy agency or something, and they just tweaked it a little bit, and they said uh, what to make well-informed decisions instead of appropriate decisions. Mm, Because what you might think is appropriate might not be what the patient or the family think is appropriate. So well-informed. Okay, so, so I'll reread it, but I'll, I'll change appropriate to well-informed. Sweet. So health literacy as the degree to which an individual has the capacity to obtain, communicate, process, and understand basic health information and services to make well-informed health decisions. things that I noticed was, first of all, on the page that this came from, you know, about, I think I got it actually, I think from the CDC is Mm -hmm. where this is listed, but it's a fairly lengthy page that really goes into explaining what health literacy is. And I think that's where they, where I kind of found um, what you mentioned, which is the well-informed versus Mm -hmm. appropriate. But this is the the literally how it's written in the law. Mm-hmm. And I also found it to be very, I mean, it's very condensed and very um, complete as a definition, but it's also very dense. And someone who doesn't have a college degree, unless you're just really well read and very well self-taught, can't read this and understand what the hell it means. Right. Is that just me? Like it, it's, it's very heavy definition. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So I kind of simplified it because, you know, that's what we do as nurses. We simplify everything. Um, and so this is how I simplified it. It means you're able to talk to a nurse or doctor or any other healthcare professional about your health, understand what they're telling you and take that information and make decisions about how to make yourself as healthy as possible. I like that. Thank you. It's probably still not even good enough for a lot of people, but it's certainly 
a little bit more palatable, as it were, than the original definition. Did you have any other thoughts when you were looking up health literacy? It's funny because I went to all different websites and links and things like that, and they basically all say exactly the same thing. There were different organizations. Some of them were associated with universities, some of them with public health centers, that sort of thing. Um, and I, I like the fact that it's such a big part of healthy people because it's healthy people 2020 and now healthy people 2030. They, they're making that kind of a focus. And I, I really appreciate that. I think that's wonderful. Yeah. And for anyone who doesn't know what healthy people is 2020 or 2030, it's the federal government's way of looking at some of the bigger issues that affect as broad a amount of people as possible and having bullet point ways of combating it. So that's the basis basics of um, healthy people. Did I get that right? Do you think? Okay. I agree. It's basically they look at different health issues that affect the population and they decide that we want to fix this and this is how we're going to try to do it. When I was looking up health literacy, I also went to my many magazines that I have, basically Oncology Nursing Society or ONS. And there was a magazine published in February of 2018 that actually has an article titled Health Literacy. And so I was like, oh, let me, let me take a look and see what it says. So I'm not gonna read the whole article, of course, but a couple of interesting things that I found Granted, this is specifically for oncology nurses, but I do think that what they found here can cover all types of nursing, to be really honest. It says more experienced nurses reported more difficulty with low literacy populations than less experienced nurses. And by more experienced, they mean roughly three plus years of experience. So the more experience you have, the less likely you're going to do well with a low literacy person, which sounds counterintuitive because it's like, you think, well, I have more experience, so I've dealt with more people like this, so I should know how to deal with more people like this. Interesting. I wonder if that has to do with the longer you work, the more you, not just you're exposed to other patients, but you're also working with more professionals and more doctors and, you know, providers, higher level providers. And so you get comfortable with that kind of jargon and lingo. And then you turn around and have to deal with this, you know, patient who has maybe no clue whatsoever. And it might be a little bit harder to, I hate saying this, dumb down your speech but uh, sometimes, you know, you have to be super basic because you, you look into the patient's eyes and you see that glazed look and they're nodding like, yes, I understand. But you realize they don't, they don't understand anything you're saying. Yes. It's not necessarily, you know, intelligence or education. A lot of it is just being overwhelmed by the amount of information and the fact that, oh my gosh, I'm dealing with XYZ health issue. How am I going to do this? Or thinking about the bills maybe, or their families or losing their jobs. And it's just too much information. Yeah. And, and even sometimes when you're at a higher level education, you tend to know more terms for the same thing. It's interesting that you bring that up because in the same study that they published in ONS, 
there was roughly 75-ish nurses that participated in this, and almost half of them could not, and I quote, did not identify communication behaviors that indicated low health literacy, hmm. right? You mentioned the eyes glazing over. Patients' nonverbal behavior indicated misunderstanding or complexity. 17% did not catch that, right? That's not good. Right. So it's like, is it because, you know, we tend to turn and like type on the computer a lot and therefore we're not looking at the patient? Because actually, I know that's happened to me where I'm like, I'm so busy trying to have the conversation and chart. Yeah. And then I turn to them and it's like eyes glazed. Yeah. You know? Or we're so focused, we're so task oriented, we're so focused on getting stuff done because let's be honest, we're all overworked, especially right now, um, that maybe, maybe almost subconsciously, we just, we don't want to pick up on those cues because we want to think, you know, everything's great. Let's move on to the next issue, the next patient, that sort of thing. Yeah. And patients can definitely pick up on that. Absolutely. Yeah. Where they won't ask until we like slow down maybe because they know that we're super busy. Even if we're, we have the air of like chill and I'm so focused on you right now, even though it's like, you know, 20 tabs open in our head (laughs) about all these other things that we have to do. Yeah. They still, for some reason, they still do not ask the question. Yeah. And, and I, I'll be honest lately, I've noticed a lot and I don't think that this has happened before as much. I'll be in the middle of something in a patient room and somebody will come in and say, oh, this patient, blah, blah, or there's a doctor on the phone about this other issue or, you know, critical lab result or whatever. And I wanted to say, can anyone else handle that? I mean, thanks for letting me know, but I'm right in the middle of something, you know? And then the patient gets the impression we're pulled in all these different directions and we want to hurry up and get done with this. And that's, that's not cool. Like I can imagine that that would not be a pleasant situation for the patient. Right. Right. And that actually drives me crazy when people interrupt me for something that's non-emergent. Yeah. But that's a whole nother podcast episode. Another thing that I found interesting when I was doing research was the amount of healthcare professionals. I looked up how many nurses there are in the United States, and I looked up how many medical doctors there are in the United States. Can you guess how many registered nurses there are? Ooh, I don't have a clue, okay. honestly. A lot? Um, for some reason in my head, I actually thought it was more. But it's roughly, it's roughly 3.1 million. Holy cow. Yeah. Wow. Now, LPNs or LVNs, so licensed practical nurse, and I think only in California, they're called LVNs, which is licensed vocational nurse, but it's basically the same thing. There is roughly 720,000 throughout the country. So when I say nurses especially in this context, I mean both LPNs and registered nurses. So Mm -hmm. that makes us, what, 3.8 
million. That's a lot. That's almost 4 million nurses in the United States. Can you guess how many medical doctors and surgeons, and now this is attendings. So meaning they are done with their training, official training. They are the leader of the pack. Everything falls under them. They are not residents. They are not new grad medical doctors. They're not fellows. They are the boss, medical doctors and surgeons. Can you guess how many attendings are in the country? Don't have a clue of that either. And this is 2019 figures. 750,000. Wow. You think about teaching hospitals and how all the residents travel in herds. Yeah. So, like old ducklings. <laughs> yeah. There's a, there's a lot of them. Yeah. Yeah. But when you pull out all of the doctors in training mm-hmm. and you just talk about the doctors who theoretically are experts in their field, mm-hmm. there's not a lot of them. Yeah. And in fact, there's what, for every one attending, there's four nurses. Yeah. So one out of every four people is a nurse. Let's say you go to clinic, you go to the doctor's office, right? You go in, you might see the nurse for a few minutes or medical assistant, whomever. Then you talk to the doctor. That is the attending. That is not a resident. That is not a fellow. That's not an intern. Not little baby docs. That is the doctor. And then let's say you have follow-up questions. Yeah, your doctor is educating you, you know, improving your health literacy, but who's doing all the follow-up education? It might be a little bit of the doctor. Yeah. But it's the nurse. Yeah. Yeah, it's us. And I don't know how many people realize that. Even when you are at a teaching hospital, like you said, yeah, there's a lot of residents that are roaming around, but how much time do they really spend in the room? What, like five minutes or something? Yeah. And who's there the the other 11 hours and 55 minutes of the shift? Who's doing the teaching? The nurses, right? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Because no one can see us. She's pointing to herself. Christina's like, we are. (laughs) The nurses are pointing to herself. So you've been a a nurse for a few years, a little bit longer than me. Mm -hmm. And I know I've heard a lot of interesting things from patients. Mm -hmm. What do you think is one of the more interesting things or multiple things that you've heard from patients that has to do with, well, we're talking about health literacy. So Mm -hmm. like, like things that you wouldn't expect to hear from another grown-up. Um, people who don't, they don't even know their organs, their body parts. They don't understand um, how things work. Mm-hmm. They don't understand the connections, um, how lab values can tell us what their kidneys are doing or their livers or why that's important, that sort of thing. How just because things start breaking down, you know, you can have altered mental status. You can be super confused and disoriented because your electrolytes are out of balance. A lot of people don't understand that, which totally understandable that they don't know that, you know, I try to ask my patients, I honestly giving chemotherapy, you know, 
obviously the doctors are supposed to, when they do, they talk about the chemo regimen, they talk about all the different uh, chemotherapies, and then we come in and we're going to give it, and then we have to do everything all over again. So I always ask, you know, do you understand why you're getting different chemotherapies? Um, and a lot of times, you know, when I check back, they, they don't really, it's too much to absorb. And luckily, you know, our, we do have whiteboards. And I think as much as it annoys us to always have to update the whiteboards, mm -hmm. it is a wonderful tool. Um, a lot of times I will write a question that the patient has down because they might think of it, but then in the moment when the doctors are there nattering at them, they don't remember it. So I'll write the question they have down and underline it so that they can glance and say, oh yeah, I have this question for you. Yep. Um, but yeah, like the chemo regimen, all the different drugs will be listed on there, but um, the patient won't remember anything from that conversation really. Yeah. And, and you know, you have to go in and, and say exactly, this is going to do this, you know, these are the side effects, um, you know, your pee will be green or your pee will be orange or yeah, know, freak out. Right. Yeah. And the interesting thing about oncology that I find is how much information there is, you know, not to say that if you're diagnosed with diabetes or chronic heart failure or something like that, it's not a lot of information, but with oncology, you get all of the things, mm -hmm. you know, it's not just, Hey, you're getting this one drug that's going to change your pee for the next 24 hours or 48 hours. It's, it can do this. And then it can also do this, 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 and this, but you might not feel it for another five years. Yeah. You know, as far as health literacy goes, though, I, I was thinking about something that is so basic, like far more basic than just a oncology regimen, um, physical therapy mm -hmm. or PT, right? So when we say PT, for the most part, we mean physical therapy, not patient. Mm -hmm. So I remember... Um, this patient who had all these other issues going on with him. And I was trying to address that, the, these issues with him. And he started to talk about how he couldn't, he could no longer get up to the bathroom by himself. That was one of his big concerns, which is totally understandable. You know, mm -hmm. bathroom issues, even if it's not necessarily the most important clinically, you know, from our perspective and from the doctor's perspective, you know, it's a source of independence and. Well, it's looking ahead for the patient as well. Like, what yeah. am I going to, you know, will I be able to go back home? Who's right. going to help me if I can't get up and walk to the bathroom? Right. And so I had called the doctor in to talk about his other issues. And as the doctor was in there, talk, and by doctor, I mean resident. Mm -hmm. And as the resident was in there talking to. Uh, the patient about the more concerning issues. The patient then starts talking about how he can't get up to the bathroom. And the doctor goes, oh, you know, we'll order PT. And as soon as the resident said this, the patient looked from the resident immediately to me. And I said, physical therapy. And he mm -hmm. went, oh, because he yeah. didn't know what PT was. Something so basic yeah. that... I mean, not to say that nurses don't rush things off, but I think we're, I, I would imagine we're less likely to than a resident or a doctor because we're the ones who have to deal with the outcome of their conversations. You know, we're the ones who have to keep repeating ourselves 
and the doctor is elsewhere doing something else? Well, one thing, um, I don't know how many, you know, I know this is geared towards nurses, but I would hope that other people would discover this and listen to it actually. Um, but you know, normally in a hospital, the, the, the day is divided into two 12 and a half hour shifts. And there's that half hour overlap in the morning and at night so that the, the nurses can give each other report. So we know what's gone on with those patients during the day or the night, you know, any issues, that sort of thing. So what they've really been pushing for is report at the bedside or nurse knowledge exchange at the bedside where the, the oncoming nurse and the nurse who's leaving talk and give each other this report at the patient's bedside so they can participate, they can ask questions, you know, they can say, hey, that's wrong, where did you get this information, that sort of thing. And I actually thought of one time where I'm rattling off all this stuff and I, you know, it's a, an alert and oriented patient and I said, um, and you know, she can be a little tacky, meaning tachycardic, and the patient immediately blew up. What do you mean I'm tacky? Yeah. What are you talking about? And I, I immediately backpedaled and I said, oh, I'm so sorry. I meant that, you, you know, your heart rate can be increased. Your heart can be beating fast. And, you know, you don't even think about that. You're so used to tossing back and forth this medical jargon and these short, you know, little shortened abbreviations of everything. And you don't stop to think that, you know, most, most people, the average person won't know what tachycardic means and certainly will not know that you shorten it to tacky, you know? Yeah. So that was kind of funny at the time, but also I was a little horrified. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I don't know. I think it was probably a very good experience for both of you because yeah. of exactly what you just said. I, if I were you, I would not be embarrassed. I might be embarrassed in the moment. Yes. I get over it real quick because she, she being the patient clearly learned something yeah and it wasn't tacky how she thought it was it was tacky like healthcare yes so yeah i wouldn't worry. as a as a fellow professional i yeah. wouldn't worry about it <laughs> no it was funny but you know at yeah. the same time i was like oh sorry <laughs> right 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 So you have kids. I don't. I have nieces and nephews. And my nieces and nephews are quite a bit younger than your kids because your kids are in the, all in their 20s, right? Yes. Yeah. My nieces and nephews are like 11 and younger. Do you ever push healthcare knowledge on your kids? Oh, 100%. Absolutely. Yeah. What, yeah. what do you uh, hammer into them? Uh, well, one thing I hammer into them is that I don't know everything. As a matter of fact, I don't know a lot of things because <laughs> I have I have a child who will text me in the middle of the night. She'll send me a picture of some vague blob on her arm or leg and say, mom, what's this? <laughs> I'm like, you know what? You know, I'm going to Google this, right? Like I'm going <laughs> to Google all your questions. I Google, you could Google too. And then she says, but you know more than I do. Uh -huh. Gosh. Uh. <laughs> okay. I, I just, I want to say, I am very disappointed in, um, in you because you are a nurse and you're supposed to know everything. And, um, <laughs> that's what everyone seems to think. So it must be true. <laughs> Nurses know everything. <laughs> no. Um, but what I do hammer home is always asking questions. And I always like, even I, even I know, but, uh, when I have an appointment, I make notes on my phone 
questions I'm going to ask because same going back to the patients and their whiteboards, you know, in that moment, you might forget something and then you think, oh crap, I forgot to ask X, Y, Z, or I forgot to ask about this medication and potential side effects and that sort of thing. So I always hammer home to my children when they go see a doctor, when they go see a specialist, I, I hammer home that they need to ask questions. They need to have the questions prepared ahead of time. And if they feel like they're not getting a proper response or a timely response, talk to somebody else, get second opinions and also see specialists. Yes. Now granted, I don't have kids, but I tell patients that all the time, or I tell my friends, like if you go to whatever doctor, or if I've heard that my friends have gone to whatever kind of doctor and they're not getting an appropriate response, Mm -hmm. I say, you need a new doctor. Mm-hmm. If you can get a new doctor, you need a new doctor and do not feel bad because it's your health, not theirs. And they're not taking you seriously. Yep. Like a friend of a friend actually had coronavirus during the whole lockdown. Mm-hmm. And her doctor thought that she was making it up. She had every, this was before all of the symptoms had come out where it was like weekly, it was a new symptom. Yeah. And so this was in the early stages of what the symptoms were. And she, today, like today, she can look back on what she was going through and go, I had every single one of those. And her doctor was like, you're BSing. You're, you're over-exaggerating. But she was super sick. Yeah. I was like, she needs a new doctor. Yeah. Uh, Among so many other examples, I'm sure. (laughs) Um, yeah, even, even I, to your point of taking notes and having things prepared ahead of time, if, if it's possible, of course. Yeah. Um, I do that too. Like I already have like a laundry list that I'm going to bring up with my annual in a few months. So yeah, yeah, I totally second that, uh, with my nieces and nephews though, I, I go a little bit, um, less higher thinking, let's say, because the oldest one is in the fifth grade. And ironically, she's the most square of all of my nieces and nephews. Um, and I say square because she can't even say the word poop. She's <laughs> 11 and she can't say the word poop. I love her so much. But her argument, because I'm like, you have to be able to talk about your bowel movements. Yeah. You know, you have to be able to at least feel comfortable with a healthcare professional. You know, it's one thing if you don't feel comfortable with other people, it's understandable. But if you're with your doctor or your nurse or whomever, you should feel comfortable talking about that because it could signal so many potential issues. And her argument is, but you're the nurse. Why do I have to be able to talk about it? Like, you just do, (laughs) you just do. You're right, though. A lot of people don't realize how important peeing and pooping is. Yeah. And what like normal looks like, because for some people, normal is pooping every week, like once a week. Yeah. I mean, there might be the oddity where it it truly is normal for them. But for the average person, that's not good normal. Yeah. That's something you need to take care of and look into. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Yeah, you should t- you should change the the name of the podcast to Poop Talk. <laughs> Maybe in the future. Maybe uh, I'll have a second podcast all about poop. 
or maybe I'll do an entire se- season on poop. Listeners, that might be coming. You hey, never know. Transplants, it's a thing. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. <laughs> For my nurse friends who are not oncology nurses or uh, stem cell transplant nurses, I tell them, like, you think you've seen all of the poop you're going to see. No. Not until you see, like, GVHD, which is graft-versus-host disease, poop. Yeah, I know it's disgusting. Well, and it, it's it's just not poop that you would see on every day. No. Going back to one of your earlier comments, this is a podcast for not nurses. Correct. Although I do anticipate more nurses listening to it, but my hope is getting to people who are not in healthcare or specifically not in nursing awesome that they understand what we do I mean I didn't have a clue honestly yeah when I went to nursing school I had never I can't except for delivering babies I had never been in the hospital ever oh wow I didn't I didn't have a clue yeah yeah you know my mom was a nurse for over 45 years and you'd think having a relative who's a nurse you'd have a clue not really it's either she didn't tell me, or I didn't ask the right questions, or you didn't pay attention. Yeah. <laughs> His mom's talking in the background. Yeah. Because kids, kids can be jerks and kids are very self-centered, which, yeah. you know, pretty normal. Yeah. I do know for sure. One, one major thing that my mom had taught me and my siblings growing up was how to read medication bottles, mm-hmm. you know, like over the counter versus brand not so much like prescription, but, you know, differentiating, like I said, brand versus generic, which so many people cannot. Right. You know, the, the other interesting thing with regards to health literacy, and I think this also, this definitely impacts uh, being able to read healthcare type products is basic literacy, because Mm -hmm. the more illiterate, not that you're illiterate, but functional you're thinking of functional illiteracy well there's actual illiteracy and then there's functional illiteracy and functional illiteracy do you know what that is yeah i mean that means you know you can read basic things but you can't fill out a form let's say or understand a long chunk of text or something like that well and then the other key part of functional illiteracy is you have a high school diploma which means that on paper, it's assumed that you can read at a higher level, right? But functionally, you can't. Right. Versus a lot of people who, you know, maybe high school dropouts have like a eighth grade or ninth grade reading level, which is obviously lower than a twelfth grade. It's sufficient, really, to get through most things. Yeah, yeah. And the more illiterate you are, or functionally illiterate, the worse your health literacy will be. Because if you can't understand basic things, how are you going to understand a higher level of thinking that is healthcare? Yep. Yeah. It's scary all the way around. Yeah. I think too, so much of healthcare is so removed from basic life anymore, you know, versus like 200 years ago, healthcare, where did that happen? It wasn't in a hospital. It was at home. Now everything happens in the hospital. And because of that, you don't see so much of it. Yeah. Like coronavirus. 
A lot of people don't believe that it's real because they don't see it. They're not scared of it because they don't see it. Granted, the worst of the worst, as it should be, are in the hospital. But that doesn't mean it doesn't happen. Yes. COVID or cancer or diabetes or COPD or asthma, anything. And when you are so far removed from from something, how are you supposed to be literate in it? Unless you have some weird obsession or you're just interested in everything. Yeah. But then you're not really that far removed, right? Because you're forcibly putting yourself in that. Correct. And then there are the people who watch Grey's Anatomy or and you know New York or Chicago Med and they think they know everything about hospitals and healthcare. Oh my god, don't get me started. You know, TV shows like Grey's Anatomy or House. I haven't seen all of the healthcare dramas, but you you barely see the nurse. Yes, it's so funny. Yeah. Or like, I definitely watched House start to finish. I'm so glad I did it before I became a nurse because I could not, I would not be able to tolerate it now as a nurse because not only do the doctors do everything nurses do, they do everything that lab does. They do everything that respiratory therapy does. They do everything that transport does. They do everything that food service, like radiology, no other profession in the hospital, but these doctors. Right. Yeah. Which means that everyone seems to think that doctors do it all. Which is funny because, you know, the doctors can't even pull meds out of our Omnicell, which is, you know, the machine that dispenses the medication. Like they wouldn't even be able to pull any kind of medication to give right. to a patient, not, me- not to mention that they don't give medications to patients. Right. Right. <laughs> uh, it, even if they did give medicates, medications to patients, or even if they had that capability, they probably wouldn't know how to. I mean, giving a pill is one thing, but you know, setting up all of those IVs. And I think everyone has seen some of those meme or that one meme in particular, where it's like four or five pumps, it's an ICU bed, four or five pumps plus the oxygen. And I mean, probably 20 drips or something, 20, 20 IVs are going into this patient. And it says like, what doctor can set this up? Like you need a nurse to figure this out. Not that the doctors won't know what the medications are for, or the appropriate dosing, but to actually set it up and make it usable. Yeah. That is a great way of thinking about health literacy Mm -hmm. in a very broad way. Doctors know how everything works, but don't necessarily know how to make things usable for the patient and public. Mm -hmm. Nurses. How many times have you come into a room to find a pump turned off or paused or something because it was beeping while the doc was in there talking to the patient and the doctor just like silences it. That's happened to me a couple times. If it's happened to me, I didn't notice it. It's uh, it's not fun. This has been a really good conversation. Absolutely. And I am so glad that you joined me for this. Um, and I wish I had said something earlier, but Inside Nursing is on Instagram and on Facebook and on Twitter, although I'm more active on Instagram. It's at Inside Nursing, all three social media platforms. And the information like CDC and other other things that I quoted, the links to those articles will also be posted. So if anyone wanted more information or to go down that rabbit hole, 
I'll help you out. I will so, be there for sure. Yes. <laughs> so follow me, click on things, what have you, and then join me again for the next episode. Yeah, it was definitely my pleasure. Thanks for having me. This is my post hoc commentary. This episode was recorded before I recorded the introduction and I stupidly left out my advanced practice registered nurses or APRNs. I'm so sorry everyone, cause us regular nurses cannot do it without you. APRNs are nurse practitioners, nurse midwives and nurse anesthetists. I really hope I said that correctly because I can say things like carboxymethylcellulose, also known as refreshed tears, but for the life of me, I cannot say anesthetist, although I feel like I got it right finally. Anyway, according to Bureau of Labor Statistics in 2020, there were over 270,000 APRNs, which they expected to increase by over 100,000 in 2021. So if you combine licensed practical nurses registered nurses, nurse practitioners, nurse midwives, and nurse anesthetists using the Bureau of Labor Statistics data from 2019 to 2020, there are almost 4.5 million nurses to under a million attending physicians and surgeons in the United States. That is a huge number. And even in 2022, that number is still expected to grow significantly, especially with advanced practice nurses. So I just want to say again, I'm sorry, my APRNs, you're here, you are seen, you are needed, and thank you for being awesome. Please come back next time to listen to a short conversation Christine and I have about health and why nurses care about it.